Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. When Charles McGonagall worked here at the FBI's New York field office, he was the top counterintelligence official in charge of hunting spies. So federal prosecutors said he should have known better than to take money from a sanctioned Russian oligarch closely tied to Vladimir Putin. McGonagall is facing charges. He took concealed payments from Oleg Deripaska, an aluminum magnate sanctioned by the United States for enabling Putin's actions in Ukraine. He's also mentioned in the Mueller report because of an association with former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort. That was ABC's Aaron Katursky describing the arrest a few weeks ago of Charles McGonagall, a very high-ranking FBI counterintelligence official, on charges related to his business relationship with Oleg Deripaska, a sanctioned Russian oligarch close to Vladimir Putin, among other unsavory activities. McGonagall has pleaded not guilty. We're here to talk about that awful surprise and a string of other astounding security lapses at the FBI, CIA, NSA, and Defense Department with investigative reporter and author James Bamford, whose latest revelatory book is called Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of Counterintelligence. James Banford, welcome to Spy Talk. I've long been an admirer of your investigative work, and now you have a new book out. It's called Spy Fail. Nice title. I like that. Spy Fall, Spy Fail. Yes, it sort of uh, uh, works off your title, which I've always loved. So uh, a <laughs> copycatism there. <laughs> well, we uh, we have a hard time inventing anything new. Anyway. So it's a collection of really extraordinary spy stories, the spy versus spy stories, with an emphasis on counterintelligence and security lapses at the agencies, in particular the NSA, well, the NSA, the FBI, and the CIA, the big guns, and huge holes driven through their security fences, such as they are. You start out with a story about stealing NSA files. Uh, uh, there's the shadow broker story. And then there's the story about Harold Martin, who uh, was like a junkyard dog of uh, NSA documents. He just piled them up. Tell us about them. Well, I'll start off with Hal Martin. Uh, it was uh, incredible. Uh, you know, today we're, we're going uh, all out for looking for documents at Mar-a-Lago and so forth in uh, Biden's house. Uh, and there's this huge attention on on a relatively small number of documents, uh, you know, a few hundred maybe at the at the most. Um, but there was very little attention paid to uh, Hal Martin. Hal Martin happened to walk out of the NSA and a few other intelligence agencies with over half a billion pages of top secret, actually above top secret documents. Uh, they were NSA. They were among the most secret documents NSA had because he worked in the most secret area of NSA, the TAO. Well, let me stop you there for just a second. Now, in the movies, you know, uh, people walking out of CIA or FBI or whatever, they stop they, and a guard at least cursorily goes through their briefcase and see what they've got. But not only in the Harold Martin story, but a number of others you tell, 
about Chinese spies, uh, Chinese moles in U.S. intelligence. They just walk out of the building with a pile of documents. How does that happen? And why does that happen? Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times a number of years ago on this whole topic. Uh, and uh, I said, you know, all the emphasis is on the the front end, you know, getting the clearance and all that stuff. And then when you walk in, I've walked into all these agencies at one time or another, all the uh, emphasis is on uh, when you're walking in, the guards are there, the metal detectors are there. And then um, at least last time I've been in these agencies, there's been nothing when you're walking out. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the idea is uh, uh, at, at least have the same amount of security as, as the local department store or my local library. I mean, if I walked out of my local library uh, back in Natick, Massachusetts, uh, uh, with a uh, with a library book, an alarm would go off. You, you walk at a, uh, you know, right. one guy walked out of the uh, CIA with uh, the operations manual to the KH-11 satellite, and nothing ever happened. He just stuffed no. it and no. walked out. It's hard to get out of a, a department store with a with a t necktie. Uh, but uh, exactly. if they have one of those things attached to it. Um, but just <laughs> to, just to sum up this again, if you apply for a job at the CIA, it takes a, over a year, usually like a year and a half. They keep claiming they're going to cut down this time. But part of, most of that year and a half is devoted to you getting a security clearance, at least an entry-level security clearance at the secret level, if not top secret. For me, going into Army intelligence years ago, I had to have a top secret clearance by the time I got out of basic training before they would send me to intelligence school. So they spend, they spend untold millions of dollars, maybe billions or hundreds of millions of dollars, doing background investigations on people applying for jobs in the intelligence community. But once you're in, you can just walk out the door with documents. That's what we're Pretty saying. Much, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you're applying and you're getting your clearance, everything's fine. You, you know, obviously it won't be uh, if you didn't get your clearance, but uh, or, you know, if everything wasn't fine, you wouldn't get a clearance. But it's one, two, five, ten years down the road when you can't make a mortgage payment or all of a sudden you go bankrupt. <laughs> uh, that's when you a lot of these people end up becoming spies when they mm -hmm. need money. It's when they start selling uh, information. So just the fact that you have a clearance doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that for, from here till eternity, you're going to be uh, have no security risk. So you've got to start focusing on on checking people when they go out. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it seems like a, a simple solution. The other solution is to start firing people, uh, you know, starting with directors. So take a few stars away. That might help. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I've never seen, well, we go back to hell. No Martin, accountability. And, uh, and uh, it was the same director of NSA, uh, uh, Mike Rogers, who was there during Hal Martin, which was half a billion pages or more uh, um, uh, gone from the agency, just walking out the door uh, on flash drives mostly. Um, and then also uh, he managed to lose uh, uh, almost all of the cyber weapons. Uh, there was another employee who happened to walk out of the agency stealing uh, three quarters of all the uh, agency's cyber weapons that eventually uh, he put up on the internet. That's um, shadow broker and, we're talking about. Yeah, he called himself the shadow brokers and, and uh, uh, North Korea ended up getting him and so did Russia. And then they ended up being used against the United States. Mm -hmm. and the irony here, NSA created these cyber weapons 
And members of Congress are saying, you know, can't you stop this? Can't you stop this? There's a worldwide cyber uh, pandemic going on called WannaCry. And the, the entire NSA didn't have an, a, a single idea how to stop it. But there was a, um, uh, a computer worker, a uh, cyber worker in London who happened to be there on vacation. And he saw what was going on. And within a couple hours, he managed to find uh, a way to create a, a, uh, a kill switch that stopped the uh, pandemic, at least temporarily, until the North Koreans came up with a new uh, way of, uh, of doing it, same with the Russians. So here you have uh, losing over half a billion pages of documents, uh, some of which went to uh, Russia, uh, losing three quarters of all the cyber weapons in the agency, which were used to create a worldwide cyber pandemic that attacked us. And nobody's ever fired. The director simply uh, yeah. left uh, under, uh, you know, favorable conditions. Well, unfortunately, the, uh, the lack of accountability goes back a long way through 911, 911 attacks, the Iraq war, the Afghan war, no accountability, no checks on uh, uh, the people who are running stuff. They pay no penalty for these uh, huge lapses. And I don't want to get in the way of a next story, a spy story we want to talk about in your book, but but uh, it seems to me that, you know, you can't stop a determined thief from walking out the door with, you know, uh, with a concealment device, with a flash drive and so on. But it seems to me you could have a, some sort of internal system that accounts for the movement and downloading of documents, especially, I don't know, with I don't know much about artificial intelligence, but I have a feeling that some computerized system could keep track of documents uh, going missing well, or being copied. Uh, you know, uh, exiting uh, every time I got on a, get on an airplane, I've got to go through a, a metal detector that looks for everything, um, and it would see a flash drive if a flash drive was hidden on me. Why can't mm -hmm. you put those same uh, uh, devices at the uh, NSA, CIA, and so forth? Uh, I've got to go through them when I just got on a plane to, you know, fly a few hundred miles or whatever. So uh, that's right. You know, uh, I mean, obviously, something like that is needed. In, in addition to that, uh, um, you know, you can have uh, devices on on uh, copy machines. You can seal the uh, uh, seal the computers so they can't put flash drives in them. There's all kinds of uh, mm -hmm. ways. And one of the ironies here is that a lot of this happened after. Uh, the uh, uh, losses from Edward Snowden. I mean, Edward Snowden, uh, who I interviewed in Moscow, um, was, uh, you know, an average employee, worked for the same company Hal Martin worked for, um, Booz Allen. Uh, mm -hmm. They were contractors to NSA. And after Snowden walked out with almost a million pages of documents or whatever, uh, according to the NSA, um, you would think there'd be a, a bigger crackdown on security, but there wasn't. Hal Martin was uh, arrested after this. Uh, the shadow brokers took place after Snowden, years after Snowden. So, yeah. um, you know, so these aren't uh, lessons learned at all. Yeah. And, and the oversight committees, intelligence, uh, government oversight and so on, they don't seem to be able to force any change here or even evince much, much interest in it. Do you think? No, not at all. I mean, the they're they're basically a joke. The, uh, the Senate and the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, I write in my book about uh, moles getting into the Hillary Clinton campaign. I mean, 
paying millions and millions of dollars to Clinton, uh, Clinton's campaign to get in. And they were in there for the entire campaign, mm, start mm. to the end. And uh, they were working for the uh, UAE government, um, the United Arab Emirates, uh, mm -hmm. high level moles. They were mm -hmm. paying millions of dollars uh, to get FaceTime and ask questions, collect intelligence. And I quote from the, uh, the uh, emails they were sending back to their spy master. Yeah, um, and uh, and then there's Man Manafort, uh, Paul Manafort, and the Russians. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> and you know with the, the equal Senate opportunity committee that what I, I don't remember hearing any hearings about this. You have a mole in a presidential campaign for the entire time. Uh, you know where was uh, Adam Schiff? Uh, you know, irony. Uh, the big irony here is that Adam Schiff took money from these same spies. Uh, he took like $8,000 in donations from these spies. So um, that's the chairman of the intelligence committee at the time. Uh, so, no, I don't have a lot of hope that the intelligence committee is going to do anything. Speaking of uh, operating in plain sight, you go on about quite a bit about Arnon Milchen, the famed, legendary Hollywood producer, produced hits like L.A. Confidential, The Revenant, JFK, 12 Years a Slave. <laughs> I could go on. He, he did 130 films. He's, he's still hugely honored in Hollywood. All these years, he's an Israeli spy. He helped steal uranium from the U.S. for the uh, Israeli nuclear bomb program. Well, he stole chitons, which are the uh, triggers for uh, right. nuclear weapons. The Israelis were building atom bombs and then H bombs and uh, uh, Milchen was the uh, designated uh, uh, guy to come over here and, and uh, steal the uh, triggers for the, the weapons. He was working for the same organization uh, that um, uh, uh, the Israeli spy, uh, just have a mental blank on his name right now, that was uh, arrested years ago. Mm -hmm. um, uh, anyway, yeah, he was working for the uh, uh, Lukum, which was the scientific arm of uh, yeah, Israeli the, the, intelligence, the yeah. intelligence agency that was focused on collecting mm -hmm. scientific and particular nuclear secrets. So he'd been doing it for years. And before that, he was the uh, arms dealer and propaganda, top propagandist for the uh, South African uh, apartheid government. So, mm -hmm. you know, here he is now. You see, uh, uh, one of the top uh, producers in Hollywood, $4 billion in the bank. And uh, he's basically admitted that he's been a spy for all. Oh, he, yeah, he kind of, he's very proud of it now. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. Where, where is he? Why isn't he in jail? I mean, wow. that was one of the points I make in the book is you get all these Israeli spies over here and everybody turns a, a blind eye to him. Yeah. I certainly don't turn a blind eye to him uh, in my book. You may remember when I did a series of stories about Israeli spying here uh, in America uh, for Newsweek. And, uh, you know, there was outrage in Israel, of course. I was personally denounced by the defense minister in Israel and, and all sorts of official huffing and puffing. But uh, a lot of intelligence professionals <laughs> reached out to me and said, thank God, you know. I mean, it's the biggest open secret in Washington, the Israelis uh uh, Israeli spying uh, uh, operations here, influence operations, intelligence collection, 
and so on. One former FBI counterintelligence director told me how he would call in the Israelis every six months and say, cut the shit, you know? I mean, you know, dial it back a little, at least. Well, exactly. You you had one of the, uh, the best uh, uh, articles I've seen on the whole topic. I quote you in the book there. Mm -hmm. Because uh, uh, it's so little is done. And the mainstream media seems to ignore it. Everybody's afraid of being... Uh, accused uh, by the Israelis of something like you were. I, I mm. mean, it's absurd. Uh, a spy is a spy. Whether you're spying for Israel, you're spying for Russia, right. you're a spy, you should be arrested and you should go to jail, period. We're spying and, for uh, China. That doesn't happen. <laughs> Let's move on to some of the astounding stories you tell about. Chinese penetration of, uh, of the CIA and the FBI, the Ma brothers, Alexander and David Ma. Tell us their story. I mean, those are extraordinary stories. Well, yeah, and it goes back to uh, 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 years back when um, the FBI was penetrated by the Russians. They were penetrated by the Russians for 20 years. Um, and then the Chinese come along and uh, around 2004, I think it was, uh, 2001, 2004, the, uh, these two former CIA uh, uh, uh agents basically they were assigned to uh, work in china when they were with, with the cia they both left the cia and then after a number of years they went back to china and volunteered to be spies one of them came back to california and was looking for uh, 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 people that the chinese were looking uh, looking to uh, silence basically and the other one they had uh, joined the the fbi as a mole um, and he was a mole there for uh, upwards of 20 years. He wasn't arrested until uh, 2020. Mm -hmm. And it was incredible how he got away with all this. Uh, he he was assigned to the uh, as a translator, which is a really key job if you're going to be at the FBI and be a spy because you're reading all the transcripts of the intercepts and so forth. Uh, he was assigned to the Honolulu office, which is the office that focused primarily on China. So after... Uh, uh, he got there. He started spying right away. And he what, he also was one of these guys who just walked out of the office with piles of documents. Uh, you say piles of documents, flash drives, hard disks. <laughs> it's just... Yeah, he he would. I mean, to me, it was just incredible because he he not only would walk out uh, uh, out of the um, um, office with you know briefcases full of documents, flash drives, or whatever. Um, once every month or a couple months, the uh, Chinese intelligence would make a reservation for him at a nice hotel in Shanghai, and he would fly from Honolulu to Shanghai, have debriefings with his uh, uh, Chinese intelligence uh, spy masters, and then simply fly back to uh, Honolulu and go back to work again at the, at the FBI. At one time, he came back, and the same day, he he attached a uh, classified document to an email he sent to his uh, counterpart or his uh, spy masters in in uh, in Shanghai. So you know, here you not only have like uh, um, uh, you know the typical spy where you're putting a bag out a dead drop for somebody to pick up, you're actually flying to the target country, <laughs> right. getting debriefed, yeah, yeah. And passing documents, and flying back. Just like I asked you earlier about, you know, why don't they have a tracking system for where documents are? And if they've been out too long, why are they out? 
uh, it seems to me, you know, we all don't like and worry about uh, these intelligence agencies being turned on U.S. citizens. But it seems to me there should be an employment stipulation that your life is an open book when you join the intelligence community, you have a top secret or above clearance, or even a secret clearance for that matter, so that you give up certain rights. And that, uh, you know, one would be that every year there's a system uh, developed where if you travel abroad, you know, just like you might be tracked by customs or the Treasury Department, um, you know, the your your old agency or current agency will be alerted when you're leaving the country. You know, so, but there isn't well, sure. there there isn't any system. When I was in, uh, you know, as a case officer in military intelligence, I assumed my life was an open book that they would track my uh, bank records and so on, uh, such as they were at the time. And then the Alder James case came along and it turned out he was driving a flashy Jaguar and exhibiting all sorts of uh, behavior related to newfound wealth. And, and nobody picked up on it at the CIA. Uh, and here you recount these cases where no one picked up on the foreign travel to China of uh, two uh, brothers who who uh, worked for U.S. intelligence <laughs> and uh, um, uh, who got in trouble uh, during their employment uh, and their uh, post-CIA or FBI employment, and yet no red flags put on their behavior whatsoever. It's just astounding. No, and it hasn't changed. I mean, if you, you know... I mean, very interestingly, uh, coinciding with my book came out, they arrested the uh, uh, the head of uh, counter the former head of counterintelligence for the FBI in New York, Charles and, McGonagall. Uh, yeah, exactly, McGonagall. And uh, uh, here's McGonagall. He's head of counterintelligence for the FBI in New York, and he's flying to uh, uh, Albania, or he's flying to Europe, and then making side trips to Albania. Uh, meeting with his contact, which was a former uh, Albanian intelligence officer, getting paid quarter of a million dollars, and uh, and having dinners with the prime minister of uh, of Albania, and then flying back to he would f report that he would fly to Aus Austria, for example, to Vienna, and never report that he actually. Uh, from there, flew to uh, one of the target countries, Albania, meeting with intelligence people and, and the prime minister. And the FBI had no idea all these years. This was going back uh, uh, back at least five years. He's been yeah. doing this uh, on after duty. And, and again, uh, flying to a target country uh, as a top official. He's, he's like second uh, highest uh, uh, after yeah. Washington. And, and we're learning more ex-FBI, senior FBI people were associated uh, with McGonagall and Albania and so on. And, and uh, a lot more is to be learned about McGonagall. Of course, uh, uh, FBI uh, officials, ex-FBI and other counterintelligence officials I've talked to in previous days uh, are just shivering at the idea of what else McGonagall could have given up. He may end up up there in the annals with uh, Ames and Hansen. Uh, if it turns out, as people fear, that he was uh, doing much more than these commercial transactions with unsavory people, but that documents were flowing to uh, the Russians and God knows who else. Uh, I mean, 
being the head of counterintelligence in New York, you're really in the catbird seat. You're seeing a lot of stuff and you know a lot of names of U.S. assets in Russia and, and other places. Speaking of giving up U.S. access, we, it, it's been almost, almost uh, it is an intelligence tragedy how many uh, uh, U.S. assets have been lost in China in recent years. Um, you revisit the story of uh, Katrina Leung, who was uh, sleeping with two, who was a U.S. intelligence asset, who was sleeping with two of her case officers, I think simultaneously. Yeah, the Chinese she, uh, FBI agents who specialized in China. Yeah, and she was sleeping with both of them, uh, and she was a double agent uh, for uh, Beijing. And uh, boy, um, you got to consider that one an intelligence triumph for the Chinese. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, in the chapter there, I show how three things ha happened basically. First of all, you had NSA lose the uh, EP3, which was the um, uh, surveillance plane, like a flying listening post, and mm -hmm. and the. Uh, the uh, Chinese got enormous amounts of the most secret information from from that loss. It was a horrible uh, incident. Uh, the NSA lost uh, enormous amounts of encryption and what targets are being targeted in in uh, in uh, in China. And then uh, within a week of that happening, um, or I think it was three weeks after that happened, that's when they recruited, the Chinese recruited a spy to infiltrate the FBI. Hmm. And, you know, going back to the FBI, um, you had Robert Hansen, who was there for 20 years, from 1979 until 2001. And then from 2001, you had, uh, uh, you, you had uh, Alexander Ma uh, in there for the Chinese. So you had um, human agents for the CIA being killed in, in Russia, uh, thanks to Hansen. And uh, you had the uh, you had CIA agents being killed in uh, China, thanks to, to Ma. Yeah. Uh, so and, and, and a third uh, former CIA officer, Jerry Lee, uh, who was also who also gave up names. Exactly. Yeah. And they knew he an interesting uh, uh aspect to that case is that they were on to him um for a couple of years at least i think or maybe over a year at least right. and they failed to arrest him exactly he flew back to the united states they knew he was uh, a spy they secretly went through his uh, his uh, luggage uh, when he was in transit in hawaii flying back from hong kong and uh, they found a, a notebook in there with uh, classified information, names of agents and everything else. And then he flew on, got a job in uh, Washington or in, uh, uh, lived in Virginia. And they questioned him every couple of months, but uh, they never arrested him. And then when he was feeling that they were getting a little too close, he flew back to China and he uh, was back there for several years. And then he managed to get caught when he came back another time. But he, they had all that time to... Yeah. arrest them and they blew it we, we we've never gotten a satisfactory answer to why that is i mean we can we can infer from our own you know knowledge about intelligence operations well they maybe they're trying to flip him run him back against the chinese uh but we haven't seen any evidence of that and you think that that kind of story would get out it would get into my hands or your hands or uh, uh half a dozen other reporters who specialize in intelligence but we haven't seen that come out 
Uh, so it's really literally inexplicable why they let him exactly. keep yeah, walking plus around. He, he would have gotten a reduction on his sentence if he uh, if he had been cooperative. Then he didn't get any reduction. He got mm. twenty five years to life or something. You know, we we uh, uh, those of us who, who who do report on this kind of stuff. You know, this is the mother's milk of intelligence reporting. When we come come upon somebody tips us off to, we learn about some huge security uh, lapse like this, and it becomes an explosive front page story. Um, I mean, it's a spy story, right? And 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 we we live off this kind of stuff. And and there's there's always an outburst of commentary, some of which we're making it today, like, oh, my, these guys are hopeless, hapless, um, feckless. Uh, they shouldn't, I don't know, they should abolish the agency, start all over or something. But it's, it's also fair to ask if we're not over-dramatizing these cases and encouraging people to draw a conclusion that it's they're all rotten, there is zero security, and this is the way things go on every day. What do you think? Are we guilty of over-dramatizing these cases or, or implying that it's uh, more widespread than it actually is? Well, I don't think so. Uh, you know, this uh, this book I'm, I just wrote was probably the first book in I don't know how long uh, focusing on the problems of counterintelligence. So mm -hmm. it's not exactly it happens every day. Uh, uh, you know, you have this... Uh, loss of uh, half a billion pages of documents from the NSA. Uh, how much attention did that get from the uh, the press? You have a lot more attention on Mar-a-Lago and, and Biden and so forth. So I think that the problem is that there's not enough mm -hmm. attention on the problems with uh, counterintelligence, uh, which is exactly why it keeps happening over and over again. Yeah. Um, so this critique that, uh, well, you guys make it sound like everybody's rotten and it happens every day. That's a a false critique because it doesn't matter how many cases there are, although it's important, it's that these penetrations are so deep, they get people killed. So and they're simple. They're they're not complicated. A guy who's working for counterintelligence, the FBI in Honolulu, and flies back and forth to the target country and meets with his agents and keeps flying back and forth. I mean, uh there's something know, how, systematically how wrong. You yeah. know. Maybe on the first million documents, you could have stopped Hal Martin, but, you know, they didn't stop him until basically almost accidentally uh, uh, after more than half a billion pages, 50 terabytes or 50, I think it was 50 terabytes of, uh, of information. He had documents in his uh, garden shed. He had they were uh, like uh, like uh, uh, McDonald wrappers in his car. I mean, he, they were all over his car. They were all over his house. And then when the FBI managed to arrest him, they completely blew that. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead of arresting him quietly and maybe turning him, they uh, uh, did a full SWAT team arrest at his house, which made everybody in the neighborhood uh, know that it happened. And that was the end of trying to turn him. Mm -hmm. And then they, uh, these counterintelligence FBI agents, they uh, interviewed him for four hours on a secret um, uh tape recorder in his house um, without ever giving him his rights, uh, reading his rights, the most basic, uh, yeah. uh, most basic rule in law enforcement. Yeah. So when they get to court, the judge threw the whole thing out or threw yeah. all the, uh, the four hours of interview out because they never did the, the most simple thing that the first day, uh, you know, a cop on the first day of the job would know.
Yeah, you know, when I was reading that in your book, I was already aware of it. But when I read about it in your book, I just slapped my forehead yet again. You know, I mean, come on. Well, this read is them counterintelligence. Read them their rights. God's sakes. I mean, it takes two seconds to do that. And it's on TV and in the movies and stuff, you know, Miranda yeah. warnings. And they could have so. easily, he worked at the NSA. He, they could have easily walked in there on a Monday morning and, and, uh, said uh, uh, some people want to see you in this little office. Well, he wouldn't have had any arms on him. He wouldn't have been armed, obviously. And they could have quietly talked to him and maybe turned him into being a, a double agent of some sort. Yeah. Uh, but they've got the SWAT team. And the SWAT team has to go out there and they have to uh, show how you know uh, uh, fierce they are or whatever. So they they completely blew it, and and uh, within a couple of days, it was in the you know in the, mm -hmm. in the papers that he was arrested. So now, um, let's look at the other side of the mirror here for a minute. Um, you know, the CIA and the FBI have its big successes too, a number of which we know about, penetrating the the Russians and the Chinese to a lesser extent, uh, and and of course, there's many. I'm I'm going to assume there are a number of other cases that we don't know about because the Russians don't hold a press conference and you know <laughs> um, and admit that they uh, they've uh, been penetrated themselves. I was on a panel once with a, a couple of people, including a former a KGB officer. And uh, he uh, recounted that this is after the demise of the Soviet Union. Uh, he recounted how he told his uh, CIA counterpart, you know, you you had two stations in Moscow, the official station hidden in the embassy and then the station inside the KGB. So we we got inside their pants, too. Uh, we don't hear about all the cases. So, uh, you know, there's the old axiom. I'm sure you're familiar with it takes a spy to catch a spy. So do we know about some of these cases because we had informants inside their operations? Yeah, I write about one of those. Uh, I, I wrote a, write a chapter about the, uh, you know, the best spy the U.S. had in, in Moscow. Um, he, was, uh, he was a spy that was working for uh, the CIA uh, in the Kremlin. Mm -hmm. uh, he was passing on information about, uh, uh, you know, what, what uh, was going on with the uh, uh, Putin's uh, eavesdropping on uh, the DNC and so forth. Uh, uh, the problem was you had major leaks from the CIA uh, that were uh, endangering his life. Um, you had CIA people, senior CIA people, because they were the only ones who knew about him, leaking to the Washington Post about uh, having a, a key spy, or they said they had information from inside the Kremlin, basically, uh, that that uh, uh, knew that Putin was behind the bugging of the DNC and so forth. Uh, that could have only come from somebody in the very upper levels of, of the Kremlin. So before they had a, a mole hunt in the Kremlin, they told uh, this uh, uh, agent in place, uh, the CIA uh, spymaster told his agent in place in the Kremlin, look, it's dangerous. We've got to get you out of here. And at first he refused because he had a family there. I mean, he had a lot of family obligations and so forth. And then the Washington Post got even more information uh, that, that showed that we had a, basically had a spy in the Kremlin. And they said, you got to get out of there right now or the next knock on your door is going to be the, uh, 
you know, Russian intelligence, uh, the Russian uh, police or whatever. And and so he finally did. He, he got out with his family, flew to uh, Montenegro. And then from there, the CIA got him out to uh, uh, to Virginia and then put him in a safe house. So um, that was a, a key spy we had in the Kremlin uh, that uh, would have been extremely valuable now with the uh, with Ukraine and so forth. Um, but it was totally blown because of uh, leaks from the uh, from the CIA. And they had to be high level leaks because, like I said, the bigot list or the list of the few people who knew about the, uh, <clears throat> you know, this operation was the director of uh, of the CIA and the director of national intelligence. Uh, and they were both now TV commentators. So, uh, you know, you, you wonder why wasn't there a, a major F, uh, CIA or FBI investigation into how we lost our major spy in the Kremlin mm. due to leaks from the, uh, the CIA? In that particular case, why do you think they leaked? Loose talk? Bragging? Well, I think uh, you got all these networks that uh, specialize in hiring former spooks. Um, uh, it's just uh, absurd. These guys... You know, if you're a, a low or medium level employee and you want to write an op-ed piece, you've got to send, send it to the agency for checking and, and all that. But you get these former top uh, people from the agencies and they come out and they can say whatever they want. And they mm. go on television, they're getting paid million dollars a year or whatever. Uh, you know, I interviewed a number of them and they, uh, they're they really happy to get out and make all this money and, and, and uh, talk about all this buy activity. That's how it leaks. And, and uh, again, the top people who who knew that information ended up be, becoming uh, talking heads on CNN and MSNBC and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Kind of depressing. So your book is getting a lot of attention. I'm sure it's going to get more attention as time goes on. Uh, anybody call you up lately uh, or yet from the government? They uh, want to talk to you about this or Congress, any of the congressional uh, oversight uh, committees? I mean, they... <laughs> I've been around a long time, so they, uh, you, you know, where to find uh, yeah, my first book, The Puzzle Palace, uh, the uh, NSA uh, or the Justice Department, whatever, threatened me with prosecution twice. But my next book, uh, Body of Secrets, NSA, had a book signing for me at NSA. So, uh, you know, it's sort of a love-hate relationship. Uh, mm -hmm. I just write what I write and they either like it or they don't like it. But uh, Yeah, but this one seems to zero in more on... I mean, all those books exposed various uh, missteps, let's put it that way, by the intelligence agencies. But this one is really a, 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 a machine guns full of bullets at uh, these agencies about their security lapses. Uh, see any, anybody calling you up and say, we, we really want to have you come testify before Congress about this? We want to make a big deal about this? No, I'd be happy to. I mean, book only came out about a week ago, so uh, I, I uh, you know, uh, for the NSA, I'm not hard to find, or for, for the intelligence community. You think, yeah, the NSA should be able to find you. Uh, <clears throat> I live right down downtown Washington. I'm right. here if you want me. I've testified before Congress uh, before several times on, on various issues, and I've spoken at all the different agencies, the NSA, CIA, DIA, or every agency. So even the uh, National Counterintelligence Executive. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm happy to share. And they say, hey, Jim, great to have you come talk to us. I can't wait till your next book. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, nothing changes that we yeah, know well, of. You know, the, the, the thing is, you've got taxpayers paying a, a lot of money for mm -hmm. PR people, for the CIA, the NSA, all the intelligence agencies. And their job is to come out and say, oh, we did all this and we did all that. And we're such a great agency and you're getting a lot for your money. Uh, there's very few people on the other side that can can come out and say, well, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> what about this? And what about this? And what about this? I'm not being paid by the government. I'm the guy on the other side saying, um, you missed telling us about all these half billion pages that you lost or whatever. Uh, yeah, okay, you did some nice things here or there, but you didn't tell us about that. And that's sort of what I look at as my job. So it's sort of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, do what journalists do, oversee what the, <laughs> their sphere of interest and my sphere of interest has always been the intelligence community. Well, I have to draw to a close now. Uh, I have to go check my malware uh, application <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and see who's been listening in on this and wormed their way into my computer again. I've been talking to Jim Bamford. He's the author of the new book, many fine books on intelligence but the new one is called spy fail foreign spies moles saboteurs and the collapse of america's counterintelligence i guess that covers it all yeah 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 it was uh uh spies moles saboteurs whatever so yeah we've got them all and uh i probably only only uh touched the uh uh the the you know top surface of of all of them maybe i'll come out few years with uh with another book on on uh, all the spies i missed or whatever <laughs> the way but anyway i've been being on your show jeff i been a mire of yours for for literally for decades so uh, and a friend as well so I'm, I'm i'm glad to be on your show hey thanks jim let's get lunch soon <laughs> okay take care all right bye-bye and that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our entire podcast archive available at our home at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, please also check out the Spy Talk column on Substack, where my colleagues and I offer fresh reporting and analysis from the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, and military operations. Until then, I'm Jeff Stein. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.